You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axecamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. As many of you know, today is a very special day. May 12th of this year. It's a day that I, I always look forward to, kind of a day to celebrate something truly great. Um, and for those of you who don't know, of course, I'm talking about Nutty Fudge Day and Odometer Day, um, celebrating the deliciousness of Nutty Fudge and the invention of the odometer. Um, no, I'm kidding. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to the moms out there and to everybody else. Uh, yeah. I want to thank and recognize my own mother. Uh, my wife and all the other mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and sisters, and other women who have poured so much into my life and who have poured so much into the lives of all the people in this place today, you are all a blessing and an example of Christ in our lives. And that's, and that's a blessing to know that we have so many uh, powerful women of God in this church. Uh, in Luke uh, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. In this verse, Christ is describing that godly mothering instinct, right? Um, that I've seen from so many of our wonderful women in this church, godly women, not just for their own children, but for me, for other people in this church, this desire to protect, to defend, uh, to, to raise uh, the children of this church in the Lord, um, whether they're your own children, whether you even have children. So many of you have shown that, God, that godly, Christ-like mothering instinct, and it's just a blessing to have. So thank you We are truly blessed with all of you women in this church, so thank you. Now, as for fathers protecting their children, let me tell you a story. Um, I may have told the story before, but it's at least been a little while, longer than, say, my dad goes between stories. Um, So, which is often not even a full week. Um, I have a daughter, as most of you know. She's my precious little girl. And she used to be an even littler, precious little girl. And when we lived in Tennessee, uh, she had this cute little pink bike. And she was so cute, and she'd ride that bike around, and she'd smile, and it would just melt your heart. It was just such a, a beautiful thing. And I would, I would take the kids sometimes on bike rides uh, around there in Jefferson City where we lived. Um, and one day we went together on a bike ride, me and, and the kids and my law partner and his kids, and we came to this hill, and not, not a hill that we were looking up, but a hill that we were looking down. And when we came to that hill, uh, for, for little Corey, this was a very big hill, and it was a pretty big hill, um, and, and it was scary. It was really scary. She was afraid that she would fall down, that she's going to hurt herself, uh, and, and you can't blame a kid for that. So as her father, I looked into her little child eyes, and I said, listen, I will hold you. Don't worry. I'm not going to let you fall, you know. Um, I love my little girl you know, so much. To this day, she's just an absolute treasure to me. Um, and, and in that moment, she was looking into my eyes, and with trust, she, she took my hand so that I could take her down that hill safely. Um, and I held her hand on the handlebars of her little pink bike and, and, and asked if she's ready to go. She said, yeah, I'm ready to go, Daddy. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. And so we looked down with trust, and we took off down this hill. 
And we started this descent, we picked up speed, and it was so much fun. Her trusting me, me being able to bring her uh, through that, uh, that moment. Um, but as we continued to go down, I noticed that we weren't going as straight anymore. And it's kind of, uh, we, we started to curve to the left, and I started to get more concerned as we started curving lefter and lefter, um, more, more and more down that way. And, and, and eventually, boom, we crashed into the ground, destroying her bike and any trust that she had in me <laughs> as her father to protect her. Um, I was unfaithful. I couldn't be counted on. I said I would do something, and I didn't do it. I felt particularly bad when I told her it was probably her fault because of something bad she did. Um, she got me back with a therapy bill, so we're, we're even. I'm kidding. I didn't say that to her. I'm not that bad. Um, but I tell you this uh, not only so you can feel better about your own parenting skills this morning um, and the fact that you probably didn't do that to your kids, but because it's important to know that there is only one There is only one who we can truly and fully trust. There is only one. With my daughter and the bike, I really wanted to protect her. I really did. I wanted to bring her safely down that hill. I totally thought I could. I would never have started down that hill if I thought that we were going to crash. But here's the thing. I don't know everything. Not since I was 20. Um, And (laughs) some of you 20-year-olds are like, oh, yeah, that was me too. Um, I don't know everything, right? Um, and, and in order to be able to truly trust me fully and for me to be able to be completely faithful, I would have to know everything, right? Jesus can be trusted because he knows everything. Because he created each one of you in this room. He can be trusted because he promises to love us. And he promised us that love and proved it by dying for us while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, and rising from the dead. And trusting Jesus, this is important, because I think this is a place where some of us get lost. Trusting Jesus means a lot more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. Trusting Jesus means a lot more than trusting that when you die, which we all know to be a a time that we can't control um, what's going to happen after we die. We know that we're not in control of that. And so it's it's not trusting Jesus to say, well, at that moment, I trust you that you'll kind of take me on the elevator to heaven or whatever. That's when I'll trust you. Trusting Jesus is about trusting him here and now for anything and for everything. That's what trusting Jesus means. It means, for tr- it means trusting God for all the things that we think we can control. All the things that we think we can control. It means not trusting our money or our jobs or our good looks, which is a real temptation for me, um, especially as, as I've started to grow these really long hairs out of my eyebrows. And Tiffany comes by and <clears throat> pulls those things out. It hurts. It really hurts, but they're nasty. Um, yeah, you can't trust your good looks. Not that I ever had them, but if I ever did, they're going quick, okay? Um, you can't trust those things. You can't trust them. And he's not even trusting our parents or our kids or our spouse or our friends like we trust God. It means we can't trust anyone or anything to give us value, true protection, or the power and strength to live. Those things we can only trust God for. We can only trust God for those things. And it means understanding that God is in control and we are not. For those of you for for whom that's something new, today is a day to, to really dig into what we're gonna talk about today because God is in control and you are not. He is the only one that we can trust for life, for all of life, for everything that we do. 
Now, today, Lord willing, we're going to work through five verses in the book of 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 3. The first five verses, to be precise, those are the verses we're going to work through. And, and we're going to see that Paul and Silas and Timothy are sort of exhorting and showing the Thessalonian church what it means to trust and rely on God. And they do this, uh, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this through asking them for prayer for themselves and praying for them. So if you have your Bibles, uh, there should be one in a chair near you if you don't have yours with you. Um, 2 Thessalonians, we're going to start at the first verse of chapter 3. It says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. The word of the Lord had been glorified and run swiftly there in that church. People had come to accept God and glorified him. I like how Paul starts out with finally, like a good pastor, and then goes on to write a whole another chapter, right? We're going to wrap up here my last 30 minutes of the sermon. Some of you are like, I hope he doesn't do that today because there's a basketball game on. I know that there's a basketball game, okay, sinners? I know that. Get a DVR, okay? It's your priority straight, people. Um. <laughs> oh, Lucas Vanderplug, I don't know if he's here. I see him back there. He's sweating already, just wondering if he's going to make it in time. God's in control, Lucas. You can trust him, okay? Um. <laughs> but just to start this, this sentence with the, with the request, pray for us. Just to start that, think about this. In starting this section that way, finally, pray for us. There's an implication. He's implying something, right? It's implied when we ask someone to pray that we need God's help, right? That's the implication of asking someone to pray. These guys, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are letting the church know, they're letting the Thessalonian church know that they need and expect God to help them because they are not in control. The very act of prayer is an admission of need. It is admitting that we need God. I've never heard anyone pray and say, dear God, I don't need any help from you, amen. (laughs) That wouldn't be a prayer, right? That's just arrogance and foolishness, right? As a lawyer at the end of a complaint, when I file a complaint to sue somebody, right, we have a section at the end of that complaint, which is the paper that gets served on you or whatever, that's called the prayer. Um, it, it's, it's called the prayer. Some of you are shaking your head like you know this. You've been sued a lot. I, I know the kind of church I pastor. It's okay. It's all good. Um, there's a prayer, right? Um, and in the prayer, you ask for what you want, right? You're going to say something like, my client's eyes were irreparably injured when looking upon the abnormally white legs of Glenn Cook. A reasonably prudent person would not wear shorts in December, and every day, as far as I've been able to tell, so we want a million dollars. We pray for a million dollars, right? Just to quote one I, I filed recently. Um, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a prayer. We're asking for something, right? In the court system, we're asking for them to give us something, usually like money or a refund on our liposuction because they said it was permanent and exhibit A. It's not. Didn't work. Um, I'm kidding. I, didn't, I clearly have not done that. Um, when we pray, we're, we are asking for something from someone who has the power to give us something that we don't have the power to get ourselves. Right? We're asking, a prayer is going to one with power 
as one without power to get the thing that we need. So if we're going to, uh, in the court system, we're asking a judge who has the power to order somebody else to pay us money or to do whatever. We're praying, we're, we're making a prayer to the judge who has the power to grant that thing because we don't have the power to get it ourselves, right, legally. Um, and so that's what a prayer is. That's what a prayer is. When we pray to God, we are asserting that he is powerful and we are not. Implied in the very idea of praying to God is the assertion or the truth claim that, God, you are powerful and I am not. I have to come to you because I need what only you can give. That's what prayer is by its very nature. And it's a reflection of the truth of reality and a position of complete reasonableness. There is no more reasonable position for a human to take than on their knees in prayer to God. It is the most reasonable thing in the world because it reflects an understanding of who God is and who we are. That's what prayer is, right? Like the child at his mother or father's knees. If you've ever been there, the child comes up and they sit in your lap and they say, Mommy or Daddy, can I have another cookie before I go to bed? That's a prayer. They're, they're praying for something they don't have the power to do. They can't reach the cookies or whatever, and they want the cookie. Now, you might say yes. You might say no. You might say wait until tomorrow and we'll do it. Right, But the, the act itself is a loving act of a loving child to a loving parent and it's something special. That's what prayer is like. Now, kids, if you really want something, go to grandpa um, because he would feed my daughter like pizza and Coke when she was like a year old. I'm not kidding. He'd sit her down. We'd you know, leave the room for a second. She's in there eating pizza and drinking Coke. She's a year old, right? Oh, she likes it. Yeah, duh, it's pizza and Coke. I'm sure she'd like to stick a fork in the electric socket, but we're not doing that. Um, dad. <laughs> Pastor Dave. Anyway. <laughs> it's a special thing though, right? When your child asks you for something in love and you want to grant that thing to them in love, that's a special thing. That's what it's like. We pray because we recognize our need for God, that he has the power and that we can trust him. So, we start this section of scripture with Paul and Silas and Timothy just admitting that straight up by saying pray. We, we need God. That's what they're saying. God has the power to make things happen, and we don't. So pray for us. And the first thing they ask the Thessalonian church to pray for is what? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. That's the first thing they pray for. They don't pray for themselves or their needs first. The first thing they ask for is that the gospel would go out that the gospel would go out. They want the gospel to go forward, the word of the Lord, the power of salvation. That is that thing that is on the front of their minds all the time, all the time. They want to see people saved from their sin and rebellion and become followers of Jesus Christ and be baptized and be discipled and become followers of Christ. That's what every person in this room's prayer should be. It's usually not the first thing I think about when I pray. It's probably not the first thing some of you think about when you pray. But it was the first thing that they asked prayer for. The first thing they wanted prayer for was pray that the gospel would go out. Pray that the gospel would go out. They had all kinds of needs. If you remember the study of Acts, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had all kinds of needs. But the first thing on their mind when they were asking for prayer was that the gospel would go out. Now, our personal tastes sometimes put us in a situation or put us in a position where we really like things the way they are. We like comfort, even me, you know, believe it or not, um, like comfort. We just like to be comfortable. And that can sometimes extend to church, where we like the way church is. We like the people of the church. We like the number 
of people in the church. And so we're not particularly motivated to see the church grow. But we actually have to fight against that mindset. We have to fight against that mindset, just as Paul and Silas and Timothy, through the Holy Spirit, are saying here. We need to want to see the church multiply. We need to want to see the church multiply and grow and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ far and wide. We need to want that. We need to want the doors of this place to be breaking down with sinners in need of a savior, just like you were and just like I was, just like we are. We need to see that. We need to see people who want freedom from addiction and drugs and self-absorption and all kinds of sin and rebellion. We need to see people looking to the great healer, Jesus Christ, who are going through divorce and heartbreak, death of family members, difficulties in life, getting fired from their job, not having enough money, whatever it is that they're coming and they need healing in their heart. We, we should want the doors to be breaking down and this place to be full of those people, not because it's comfortable, it certainly will be uncomfortable, but because we want the word of the Lord to run swiftly and be glorified, which is what they're asking for. We're not here to eat cookies and chat about the weather. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I like doing all those things. Those are all good things. Cookies are delicious. But those things are not our mission, ultimately, right? They may be fun, we may enjoy them, and there's nothing wrong with them, but they're not our mission. We want to see the word of the Lord run swiftly and be glorified. That's what we want. Now, back in these days, in, in Greece, this is, you know, of course, Thessalonians, they're in Greece, Thessalonica. Um, they would have been very familiar with the Olympic Games. In the Olympic Games, you would have runners, right? And the runner who ran the hardest and the swiftest would be glorified. They'd get a crown and they'd win. They used to do all that naked, by the way, which I think would be incredibly uncomfortable. But that's the way they did it. I mean, I'm just telling you history, okay? Um, they would run, and so, and so we're using, Paul's using that example here to, to talk about the gospel. Look, we want the gospel to be the winner of the race, to run swiftly and ultimately be glorified. We want the gospel to be, to go out to everywhere it can go out to, and that people would accept it and glorify God as a result of it. That's what they wanted. That's what we want. That's what we want. We're on a mission from and for Jesus Christ, our King, the King of Kings, to see the world saved through him. That's what we want. That's what they wanted. We want this place to be busting at the seams with people hungry and thirsty for righteousness and for the word of God. That's what we want, right? Some people are, get concerned about that and they worry about growth and, and the, they, I think they feel like churches who want to grow a lot, uh, are, that there's something wrong with that, like they just want a lot of people for some other reason. But the only reason that we care about growth is to see people healed and saved. Don't worry that we're going to become some mega church or some this church or some that church. The only church we're ever going to be is Jesus Christ's church. And Jesus Christ's church runs hard and fast to see the word of the Lord go out and be glorified, period. That's what we do. We want to see people get baptized, saved, and taught. That's it. That's our job. Pray for it. Think about it. Dream about it. Work for it. Whatever it is, we want to see it happen. We are the body of Christ. And I want you to think about this. Where else would you want people to be but here? With you. With those who have been saved and taught and matured and able to give what these people need, which is the love of Jesus Christ. That's where we are, that's who we are. As many as possible, and more and more and more people finding life in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next verse. 
chapter 3, verse 2. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Not all have faith. We may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. They're asking for prayer for rescue and deliverance from unreasonable and wicked men because they know that God is the only one with the power to deliver them. God is the only one who can be trusted to have the power to deliver them from unreasonable and wicked men. And some of the ladies are like, yes, men are unreasonable and wicked. <laughs> I have some unfortunate news for you. The word men used here just means people, okay? Unreasonable and wicked men and women. Happy Mother's Day. Paul and Silas and Timothy have been in a lot of places at this point. And people have not all reacted kindly to the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's been beatings, beatdowns. They've had rocks thrown at them. They've been put in prison. They've had all kinds of things happen, jailed, mocked. That's what's happened because these people are unreasonable and wicked. They're unreasonable because they refuse to accept and believe that God is God and they are people. They refuse to accept and believe that God is God and they are people. They refuse to believe that they need to be saved, so they reject the Savior of the world because of their refusal. It's both unreasonable and wicked. It's sometimes the people who think that they are the most reasonable, who, who consider themselves to be the most reasonable, the smartest people, sometimes it's them who are the most likely to reject the power of the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's those people, right? They reject scripture, they reject God, they reject his commands, and in doing so, they reject reason. They reject reason. The message of scripture, written from back to back, front to back, the whole thing is about Jesus Christ. It's about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. The historical miracles of God, the ones that are happening now, the fulfilled prophecy, the explanation of reality in Scripture is the best and most reasonable explanation of reality in the marketplace of ideas, period. It is the most reasonable. If you reject that truth claim that I just made, that Christianity and Scripture are the most reasonable explanations of what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, experience, think, and, exp and all those things. If you don't believe that, I invite you to spend some time watching or listening to any of our skeptic series where we lay out the truth of God and the reasonableness of it, and we answer the question of skeptics in detail. Just go to seekingskeptics.com, seekingskeptics.com, and you'll get an earful from a very handsome and humble guy. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, you'll get an earful either way. Uh, it is unreasonable. It is unreasonable to reject God. It is rejecting the truth and unrighteousness, as Roman one, Romans 1 tells us, okay? And it leads to all kinds of wickedness, and that is what this prayer is for. That is what they're asking for prayer for, for these guys to be delivered from these people who are unreasonable and wicked and who are looking to destroy the gospel so that the good news could be proclaimed to the people Right, So the good news could be proclaimed and that people would be coming to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That's what they were looking for. Get these unreasonable, wicked people out of the way and let the gospel spread. In that sense, in that sense, we're talking about the fact that all don't have faith. Right? That's what it says here. Right? It says, unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Not all have faith. Now, faith is what? 
uh, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, it is the substance of things hoped for. Okay. What are we hopeful for as believers in Jesus Christ? We are hopeful for the return of Christ, who will make all things new, who will fulfill every promise he has made. We are hopeful for that. Our faith is that. It's the substance of that hope, right, of the thing that we hope for, right? We are hopeful for Christ. He will fulfill every promise that he's made, and he has made some amazing promises, and we believe that he will. But for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, the one who rejects Christ, they are not hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. They are not hoping for the return of Jesus Christ for the same reason that you are hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. They are not hoping for the return of Jesus Christ because he will be faithful to do every promise that he has made. Every promise he has made. Now the promise for us is amazing. that We've been saved from our sins through him. That those of us who will humble ourselves and serve him as Lord will be saved no matter what we've done. But for them, the promise is more like the promise my mom used to give when she said, just wait until your dad gets home. <laughs> right? And I, I mean, I don't want to make too much light of it because the fact is Jesus has promised judgment. Jesus has promised judgment for all people who reject him. All people who reject him. He has promised death and separation from God for the rebel and the sinner who will not call upon the name of Jesus Christ. For those of you who were with us back in the study of the book of Acts, in Acts 24, we had Felix and Drusilla. Paul was in prison there. Felix was a governor in the area, and he calls for Paul. He and Drusilla are going to chat it up, hang out with Paul, and he's going to talk to them. And it says that Paul reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it says that Felix was afraid. Felix was afraid because he was a governor and he had power in his little area of the world, but he knew that he was powerless and hopeless because he was rejecting Jesus Christ and the judgment was going to come. And so he was afraid. He was afraid that Jesus Christ would bring judgment. So some people don't have faith because they do not hope for the things that we hope for. They don't hope for the things that we hope for. So that's one thing. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The unbeliever doesn't have that kind of faith because they're not hoping for what you're hoping for. But there's another side to faith, and it's the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. This does not mean that Christians or believers who have faith have faith because they believe in things they can't see because they're ignorant or blinded. That is not what that's talking about. That is not what the word faith means, regardless of what popular culture wants to make the word faith means. mean. Everybody has faith, right? You are sitting in a chair right now. And there's evidence of things not seen. If you're looking at me, which I highly recommend you do, you cannot see the legs in your chair. But you probably have faith that they're there. Why? Because you're sitting on the chair and you haven't fallen down. This would be a great time for one of these chairs to just collapse out from under some of them. Um, you believe in the legs of the chair because you're sitting there, so it must have legs. When you see a tree standing up and you can't see the roots, it's not like you think, well, I can't see them, so they must not be true. I'm not going to have some kind of blind faith. You're like, it must have roots because the tree is standing there. I can, by the thing I see, it's evidence of the thing that I can't see. There's all kinds of things that you can't see that you believe because of the things that you can see. That's what faith is. It's not blind faith. It's not believing in fairy tales because we want them to be true. That's just called wishful thinking. That has nothing to do with faith. That is not a faith position. That is, a, that is some sort of wishful position. Faith is a word that refers to what every human being does about every single thing that they can't see, including every historical fact that you believe, including the fact that you believe that your car is still sitting out in the, in the 
uh, parking lot right now when we don't know. Somebody could have stolen it, could have disappeared, who knows, right? Some of the cars I've had, it could have just disintegrated and fallen apart by now. You don't know, right? But you believe. That's faith. Faith is reason. It's reasonably believing the things that you can't see. And there are some who don't have that. There are some who don't have that. They don't want to believe in the things based on the things that they can see. They refuse to reason from that which we can see, which is all that God has created and done from day one to today, from the creation of the universe to this very day, all that he has done, all that he has promised, all the prophecy that's been fulfilled, everything that's there, and and not the least of which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They refuse to look at those things and, and reason to the truth that God exists. They don't have faith, and they don't believe that they need to be saved. They don't believe they need to be saved. And there's another kind of faith that, that we're talking about here that Paul's writing about that he's about to juxtapose against the next verse. And that kind of faith is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Right? Like what caused my special little girl to be putting Band-Aids on her knees because her dad couldn't ride a bike. Right? I was not faithful to her in that moment. I told her I would do something. I was unable to do it. Faithlessness is the fact that people cannot be relied upon to truly protect and care for us anything like what God can be relied upon. And whenever we put our our trust in people, we're putting our trust in the faithless. They're not faithful. They cannot be. It's not their fault in a lot of cases. I didn't want my daughter to fall down. I thought I was coordinated enough to ride a bike. I wasn't, right? My faithlessness wasn't, wasn't some character flaw in that case. It was just the fact that I can't do what I sometimes think I can do, but God can. There's faithfulness and faithlessness. Let's read the next verse and you'll see what I mean. It says this. It said, but not all have faith. And the next sentence is, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil, evil one. We're juxtaposing these things together. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. The only one that can be faithful for the things that really matter. He will protect you. He will guard you from the evil one. God is a true and faithful protector in his power. Remember the Lord's prayer and deliver us from the evil one, right? Here it's saying, look, God is faithful and able and powerful enough to do that. He will deliver us and protect us from evil and the evil one. Now, does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you? No, that's not what it means. You already know that's not what it means. If I started saying that's what it meant, you'd all get up and walk out because you have enough reason to recognize that's untrue. Bad things will happen. Hard times will come, right? The rain falls on all of us. We live in a fallen world. We're gonna face difficulties. We're gonna face spiritual warfare. All those things are gonna happen. That's gonna happen. What it's saying is that we are protected in truth, that we are protected by God from true harm from true harm, where other people are not faithful and could never be, could never be, don't have the power to be, God is faithful. He's been faithful to me and he is faithful to you. He's faithful. Again, not that bad things never happen. Not that bad things never happen, but that God will be your protector and is my protector from what I'm calling true harm true harm, because I know that he has an eternal plan. 
I know that he has an eternal plan and that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. So true harm could never come because all things will be worked together for good. That doesn't mean there's no pain. That doesn't mean there's no pain. There's a difference. It just means that true harm cannot come. Now, how do I know this? Because I have faith. Now, why do I have faith? Because of what I have seen. Because of what I have seen. I have seen the work of God in my life, in your lives, and in many lives throughout the years. I've seen it. I know his work is good. I know his promises are true because they have always been true. And I know his promises will always continue to be true. I know that by faith because of what I've seen. The Lord is faithful. That's what, we're, that's what the Holy Spirit through Paul is right here. The Lord is faithful. He will bring you true protection in his power, but you have to trust him for that, not yourself. Not yourself. We struggle with that, right? We want to live in our own power. We want to be self-made, right? Is this not sort of the mantra of our times, to be self-made? We don't always want to admit or believe that we need God's power for everything. I don't know how many times God has had to put me in a place where I've had to see that I don't have power and I've had to rely on him. Every time I get up here, I'm not. I don't have the ability to preach the word of God effectively. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He said to show me that time and time and time again. Everything I do, fathering my children, being a husband to my wife, working, uh, everything, getting out of bed in the morning, I need the power of God. I more and more have that revealed to me as time goes on. We don't like to admit that all the time. We don't like to admit that God is the one who is doing it, who is the power behind all of it. But he is the vine, and we are the branches, and we either abide in him and his power, or we wither and die, period. It's just the way it was set up to be. It's the way it should be. You are not self-made. Let me just get this through to you right now. You are not self-made. If you are, you are a mess. Because, you, because self-made is not good. We don't know how to do that. We want to think to ourselves sometimes that we've done it ourselves, right? We've accomplished it ourselves. We've made it happen. We worked harder than the other guy or the other girl for what we got. We provided for ourselves. We protected ourselves. And other people would be just fine if they would just get up off of their bottoms, mom, right, and and get it done. They could do it themselves too. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's arrogant and untrue. It's arrogant and untrue. God gives us the talent. He gives us the talent, the ability, the skill, the drive, and the results. It's all him. We are his servants, his children. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God in you and through you. It's about the relationship that you have with God. That's that's where our power comes from. That's where our power comes from. I've talked about children before. As most of you know, children are reliant on their parents. They're relying on them. They know they're not going to eat. They're not going to get the cookie. They're not going to get the things they want without mom and dad. And they're totally fine with that. They don't feel bad about it. They don't feel some pressure to be self-made. When they're a kid, I'll change my own dang diaper. They don't don't do that. I wish they would have. I'll tell you. That was rough. And I was a diaper-changing dad. I changed diapers like twice. So, no. I changed diapers plenty. They're not self-made. They don't feel bad about it. 
They're not trying to be, right? And the kingdom of God is like them, like them. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are bringing the point home here. You gotta trust God. You gotta trust God. We should not feel bad or pressure to be self-made. We should be humble and willing to admit and glad for the fact that God has given us the strength and the power and the ability and everything that we have and to rely on him and trust him for those things. That's how it's supposed to be. Jesus is Jesus and we are us. That's how it's supposed to be. It's good. It's a good thing. But hell will be full of people who refuse to accept that fact. Hell will be full of people who refuse to accept that fact. People who live in delusion, believing and wanting to believe that they're in charge. That's, it's going to be full of that. But God is in charge. God is in charge. You can believe it now or you can find out later. Those are the facts. Maybe I wish it was, was not so difficult, but I don't because I know it's, it's good that God has it the way it is. And let me tell you, don't find out later. I'm pleading with you. Believe it now. God is in charge. You are not. Let's look at the next verse, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you do and you will do the things we command you. Now, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul. We have confidence, where In the Lord concerning you. In the Lord concerning you. Not we have confidence in you. No offense. The Thessalonian church shouldn't be taking offense that the confidence is not in them. The confidence is in the Lord because the power, the only power for them to obey the commands to do them and to continue to do them comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from them. They will only obey the commands if they live in God's power. So the confidence is in the Lord that he will give them the power to obey the commands. You will not be good by yourself. You will not follow the Lord by yourself. You will not do the things that need to be done by yourself. If you haven't figured that out by now, you figured that out by now, right? You figured that out by now. You won't do it by yourself, only in God's power. We're not worthy of confidence in ourselves. I don't have confidence in me or confidence in you because we're a mess and we mess up and we miss the mark. But God is working through us, in us, to bring us into perfection. That's his work. He will give us the power to obey the commands of Jesus. And that's what they have confidence in. Again, trusting in God. Over and over through this, through this section, trusting in God for that power. Remember the Great Commission, right? Because Paul and Silas Timothy could sound like they're a little bit, uh, I don't know, power trippy. The commands that we give, we'll give you some commands. Sounds a little power trippy maybe, but here's the thing. The Great Commission, the mission of the church eternal, the, the, the church that's always been, and the mission specifically, the mission statement of this expression of the body of Christ at Acts Church. This is it. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all the authority. Then he says this, go. When he says go, what he's saying is, I am now delegating to you some of my authority to go and do these specific things. What are they? to make disciples of all nations, to make Christ followers, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth. He's given us. 
his disciples, his followers, his delegated authority, his delegated authority, his jurisdiction to carry out this specific mission. What is it? To go into the world, to make disciples, to make new Christ followers, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to do all that he commanded. That he commanded. These are commands. Jesus is in charge. I know we don't like that in this culture. It's not just this culture. No one has ever liked it. From Adam and Eve on. We don't like commands, but the truth is that it is righteous and good and fitting that God should command us to do things because God is in charge. Now, he does not. He does not tell us to go into the world to make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to consider all of his suggestions. I know that's the way we would want to put it. That's the way we want to put it because you know it offends people to say anything different. Teach them to consider all of my suggestions. Because, you know, do you. You do you. That's not what he's saying because we're not in charge. Because we're not in charge. The quicker we get that, the quicker we move towards holiness. If you don't understand that you're not in charge, you do not understand yourself and you do not understand God. That's okay. you got to learn about it. You've got to grow into it. Paul is using apostolic authority, but that is just the authority that Christ has given for us to do the Great Commission, to do the Great Commission, to act, to teach all that Jesus commanded. That's what we're doing. So those commands are not, are not harsh. They're loving. But they are real commands. We cannot break the chains of God's created order and plan. And these commands are part of that. It's laughable to think that we could. It's laughable. So what we read in Psalms 2, that God laughs at those who think that. We are to obey Jesus' commands. Commands. Not because God is a tyrant who has all these commands for us. That's not why we do it. It's because Jesus loves us and the Father loves us, period. I don't tell my kids not to run in the street because I was finally glad that I had somebody that I could order around and command. That's not how it worked. I wasn't like, whew, I'm glad we had these kids. I have always wanted to be able to tell some people what to do and make them do it, and if they don't do it, I get to spank them. That was not my attitude. That was my dad, okay? Not me, just kidding. Dad. We'll talk later when he's not in the room. I'll tell you all about it. I told them not to run in the street. Why? Because I love them and I want what was best for them. My commands were not a power trip. My commands were because I did not want them to be hurt. And I wanted them to have full and powerful lives in Christ. That's what my commands always should be and hopefully were about. Jesus does not want you to obey his commands because it's not a power trip. He knows who he is. He doesn't have any delusions. There's no lie in him. He understands completely who he is. He's not suffering from any of that. He doesn't need it for some sort of power trip. He wants us to obey his commands because there is life and life more abundantly in them. That's why. For those of you who think that Christianity, for those of you who might be checking it out and thinking it's just a book of a bunch of rules, that kind of a God who has a power trip wants us to obey or else he's going to zap us, you are missing the point. And a lot of us will say, but that's no fun. His commands are no fun. I want to have sex with my girlfriend or cheat on my taxes or get hammered with my friends or gossip about my neighbor, right? Steal from my job, whatever. And we justify our disobedience to God's commands, to Jesus' commands by saying, it's no big deal, right? It's not hurting anybody. Heard that one? Said that one? 
thought that one? Or God doesn't really understand. My favorite is this one. One of my favorites. The Bible was written a long time ago. And it was really specific to the context of that time. And so it's really not relevant for today's sexual morality or today's morality on this or today's political realities or whatever because it was written a long time ago. Now listen, if you're God, if the God that you're believing in is a God that is not powerful enough and all-knowing enough, all-powerful and all-knowing enough to write scripture so that it could be effective at 2,000 years ago and today, if he's not capable of doing that, he's probably not capable of creating the cell, the biological cell, or the crab nebula, or a tree, or you or me. Okay? The God that created all the things that science can't even begin to comprehend is plenty smart enough to mean what he said and say what he means. They are his commands. We may not like them. We may not think it's fun. But the fact is, is that when we break them, we are like the kid running out of the street. And him saying not to break them is not him saying, don't have fun. It's saying, there's a car that's about to hit you. My commands are for you because I love you, is what he's saying. So stop making excuses, all of us, and start obeying our loving Father in his power. In his power. Our confidence is in God. It's in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead to give us the power to obey to give us the ability to obey. For those of you who feel like you're stuck, I can never do it, I just keep failing, I keep messing up. Yes, story of living in a fallen world. Story of, of the sin nature, story of all that, but here's the thing. God has provided the power through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we do not have to be slaves to sin. That we can grow and live in him and, and do better and do better. We have him to give us the strength we trust him to complete the work that he has begun in us. Let's look at the last verse for today. We're running close to the basketball game. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. This is a very, we've talked about body, soul, spirit before. This is a very body, soul, spirit verse. The Lord is directing your heart, soul, Right? Soul and heart, those are, those are words that, that are referring to the same thing. The soul, the place of decision. Right? That's why God says that, that evil is in your heart. It's in that place where you're deciding to do what's wrong. Saying, the Lord directs your hearts, directs your soul into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. That the Holy Spirit is working on your spirit to direct your heart, spirit affecting soul, to what? Into the love of God and the patience or perseverance of Christ. The Lord directs our hearts to the power of the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give us his power to love like God, his power to deal with life like Christ did and have the patience and perseverance of Christ. Now, how patient was Christ? How obedient was Christ? And how much did he persevere? Let me tell you how much. Philippians 2.8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death of the cross. That's how much patience, that's how much obedience, that's how much perseverance. Now, for us, we'd probably be like, I don't know that I could be that patient, that obedience, obedience, so on. But what we're saying here is, may the Lord direct your hearts, may the Holy Spirit give you the power that you can make the choice to have that kind of obedience, patience, and perseverance, like Christ. He can get us to that point just like our Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ did. 
because he's doing something in his power. This is what he's doing. Being confident of this very thing, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise I want to leave you with today because it's the promise that sort of sums us all up. That if we can trust God in his power, in his power, we can see the gospel move forward. We can be protected from those who are evil. We can see the faithfulness of God, right? We can uh, move forward and know that we can do the commands of Christ and we can have the patience and perseverance and obedience that Jesus Christ showed ourselves if we'll trust God. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, It really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.